Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Joshua David Stein, and I'm the author of Cooking for Your Kids, At Home with the World's Greatest Chefs. Before diving into this book, I'd like to thank my new sponsor, Bloomist. Bloomist creates and curates simple, sustainable products that inspire you to design a calm, natural refuge at home. I'm excited to announce they've just introduced a new tabletop and kitchen collection that's truly stunning. Surround yourself with beautiful elements of nature when you're cooking, dining, and entertaining, and make nature home. Visit Bloomist.com and use the code COOKERY20 to get 20% off your first purchase or click the link in the show notes. Now on with the show. So I thought this cookbook would be the perfect choice for kicking off season seven because for many of us, our kids were at home doing remote schooling last year. And frankly, every meal I made for my son seemed like a blur. You wrote in the book, sometimes the kitchen isn't a refuge. And I'm starting to get excited about cooking again and getting back to a normal routine. How about you? I feel like I have a bit of a complicated situation, or I don't even know if it's complicated. My kids homeschooled last year. Um, We took them out of the school system, but I also share custody with them with their mom. So a lot of the daily cooking falls to her. But I am very happy, extremely happy, that they will be occupied by someone else until three. Because for the last, it feels like, Two years, I would just be picking them up at 1 p.m. every day. And yeah, responsible for lunch and dinner those days. And I have to say, even as I was writing this book, I was also ordering so much from restaurants and like spending so much money or at home trying and failing to make things that they like that just to have a little more breathing room, even if it's just until the afternoon, I feel like is a godsend. Oh, yeah. I totally get the trying and failing because I was trying to make restaurant style meals and it was a total fail. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like as someone who loves food, which I do, and I love cooking, I mostly love food more than cooking, to be honest. But like I would put so much of my own ego into the meals. You know, you're reading like, (laughs) you know, I'm not afraid to admit it. Like I live by the New York Times cooking section. So you'd be reading something which sounds so delightful and whatever, has fresh herbs and I don't know, even if it's a sheet pan thing, it sounds sophisticated. And in my mind, I'm like, I want this life where I make this and my kids eat it. And all they want is pizza without the sauce. So it's like (laughs) um, really humbling and has taken many moons to be appropriately humbled to realize it's not really what I want and to make and what I want my life to be, but kind of what it is. You write so beautifully in this book about how exhausting parenting is, but on the other hand, it's full of rewarding moments. Um, The wonderful thing about this cookbook is that it's not just merely a collection of recipes you can make for your kids. I felt like I was getting to know these chefs from a different perspective as a parent, and I felt like they put a lot of thought into each recipe they contributed to this cookbook. I'd love to 
to hear about your system of collecting recipes from the world's greatest chefs, which I love, and how you chose these specific chefs. You know, I had been the U.S. editor of Where Chefs Eat, which is at Fiden, and my job was to find all the chefs for North and South America. And I had wonderful colleagues who were doing the same for Europe and Asia, and glaringly not so much Africa in this edition. So I kind of had a spreadsheet of chefs and contacts that I kind of I I knew. In in that book, each chef recommends like eight different restaurants. So you end up with this like massive global database. Where I started was clearly they had to be parents. Ideally, they'd be parents of youngish children. Um, like teenagers is fine, but like not grown children. And it was important to have geographic uh, diversity, for, very important. So many of these books end up being the United States and then Asia, I find, and Europe. So making sure it was geographically diverse. And making sure that it wasn't all men, which I think was so salient in this instance, because we're talking about how to raise a kid. And one of the reasons why there are fewer women in fine dining, although I'll get into the fact that not all of these are fine dining restaurants, but one of the reasons why is because the punishing work-life balance doesn't really allow for child rearing. And it was important to me to get an equal distribution between men and women. Um, the book is laid out in, in there's 50 entries, I would say entities. I think there's something like 16 couples, and then the rest is equally divided by men and women. And I wanted to go beyond the traditional, I'm using air quotes, like best restaurants. When you use a, a metric like that, there's already inequality enshrined in that list. So going beyond that, looking at additional uh, sources, expanding the notion of what a great chef is. So it's not all about the stars. Because I also think that there's so many voices which are not solicited when you use such a narrow definition. So basically what I did is I came up with this ideal list, uh, geographical spread, gender, race, and built my list that way. And then in certain areas like, oh, I need a United States chef. If someone dropped out, then I would have a replacement. But I was really happy with the contributors and very very grateful. And I did interviews with each of them to talk about that other stuff, which shows up in the cookbook as in the head notes sometimes, and then in sidebars, which is like a non-romantic idea of a non-romantic advice and just the reality of what it's like to raise kids as a, as a professional um, who works six nights a week. That's how everything came together. I love that because I find in the food world, everything is so romanticized. Like I just whipped this together and that's not the reality of it. And the reality of parenting is it's hard. And it's been really hard these past couple of years. Other than doing cookbooks, I was for a long time the editor at large at a parenting website called Fatherly. And I really think that that romantic aspirational model, although it might inspire some people, for me, it really is demoralizing because that's not what my life is like. And you already feel like a failure when it's not working out. So to feel like a failure because it's not working out and then to feel like you are alone, that there's other people for whom it's just effortless, is really hard. And so my approach is always 
I want to be of service. I want this to be content which is useful, but it also models the fact that even the people who you think should not struggle with this, they also struggle with this. And so I hope to give parents recipes, but also kind of show them that they're not alone in struggling. So you just said a little bit ago that it's not all high-end restaurants in this book, but there's no lack of flavor and sophistication in these recipes. Flavor and sophistication are not coterminous with fine dining. It's funny because that's what we're kind of raised to believe. Yes, but erroneously. Yeah. (laughs) So how did the food photography work? Was it submitted by the chefs? Oh, man. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Many took pictures. Some didn't. I ended up shooting a lot of them in my apartment, which like if, if you... I hope no one will be the, well, I don't know. Maybe I hope someone will be this obsessive, but like you can see like repeated countertops. I'd go over friends' houses and like shoot on their counter. One of the shots is on my floor because it kind of looks like a cutting board. Um, (laughs) And then in cases where I couldn't shoot it, they didn't provide anything. So I did all the illustrations too. So I would draw what I thought the, um, (laughs) what the dish was. That's hilarious. I mean, and I think it would only, you know, I think the genesis of that clearly was financial consideration on behalf of Fiden. But I think it also actually worked in this specific case because it does feel almost like a DIY project that I did in the past year while I was like stuck at home, making the dishes, shooting them, illustrating the manuscript, you know, writing the head notes, the recipes, the sidebar, all that stuff was like just me in my bedroom you know, over a period of months. You wrote in the book, we become who we are around the tables of our childhood. And you also talk about something called the lunchbox moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, those are kind of like two separate things. I feel like the moments that I had around my family's dinner table or breakfast table, same table, actually, were very formative for me in the sense that that's when my sister, my mom and I, before we all went off to school or work, and it was a touch point for our day. So this was kind of like a, a moment where we would argue and converse and, you know, chat and joke and like connect. As for the lunchbox moment, that's actually a term which is used by a lot of Asian Americans for when they go to school and they open up their lunchboxes, which have gimbap or whatever it is that their parents made them, and they're sort of shamed or shunned in some way by the other kids. And it's that opening of the the lunchbox and realizing they're not the same as the other kids' lunchboxes that can have a very profound effect on a lot of kids. A lot of chefs have talked about it. I'm actually finishing up a children's book called Lunch From Home, which is all about this lunchbox moment. Um, And it features four chefs who go through it and how they deal with it. I'm so curious to hear about Quark Pancakes on page 36 from Vladimir Mukin of White Rabbit in Moscow. He has an 11-year-old and a 5-year-old. What is quark? So quark is basically soured milk, and then you strain the curds into a cheese. It's kind of like cottage cheese or cream cheese, like a farmer's cheese. Okay. In Russian, it's called tvorog, if you see it at the store, T-V-O-R-A-G. But he's fun. I mean, like Vladimir, so the white rabbit, he was in chef's table, and he's talking about how he uses, like, moose lips and all of these, like, very 
far out Russian ingredients. And then I love it that he just makes his kids basically cheese pancakes. <laughs> and uh, the other one is like um, zucchini fritters or something like that. So speaking of pancakes, you have few memories as a child in the kitchen, but you fondly remember your father's pancakes. Yes. I used to marvel that he would make snails out of them. You know, now that I realize it's just like one big pancake and then like two little tails. <laughs> but uh, I really loved when he made pancakes. The other thing, which I don't know if I wrote about, it's in the book, actually. One of the recipes Brooke Williamson recommends is we used to call it a gas house egg. It's like butter covered bread. You put it in the pan. You cut out a circle in the center. You break an egg into it. I don't know what you call it. That's called egg in a hole. Yes. Some people call it egg in a hole. We call it gas house egg. <laughs> um, there are like all of these other names for it. That was a moment of enlightenment as well, that we all basically did the same thing, but we all called it something else. And not everyone called it a gas house egg. I don't even know why we called it a gas house egg. I know. Where'd you grow up? Pennsylvania. Oh, it might but be I Pennsylvania. But I think gas house egg, maybe an Indiana thing, because I know my grandparents who lived in Indiana called it that too. Or maybe it's just a weird Stein thing and doesn't exist outside of the house. I think we need to Google that. We do, but not now. <laughs> yeah, not Later. now. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how breakfast is the perfect place to gently expand palates. So as an adult and a restaurant critic, I find it so frustrating how breakfast is so standardized. Like you go to a restaurant with an otherwise innovative chef and it's still just omelets and eggs and toast and bacon and whatever. But for a kid, I think you can use something like eggs, which scrambled are just like a medium, to carry forth other flavors, whether it's exploring spice, like Asma Khan's recipe, you know, even something like lox. You have your base layer, which is comforting and known, and then you can add incrementally innovation or experimentation or something new on top of that. But you have at its heart something that's familiar. I think kids do well when they're guided towards experimenting as opposed to kind of like thrown into the deep end. Like that's what I think that so much of this stuff really depends on like what is your own family dynamic. If you have a secure attachment with your kid and the ability to push them in these ways and to guide them, then that's wonderful. Not everyone has that. For me, when I think about it, it's like I have to let go of something if I have to let go of something, I'm going to let go of trying to push them too hard in terms of food. They're growing up in Brooklyn, right? Yes. So their palate is going to be so far past yours by the time they hit high school. I think so. I mean, I will say that they've inherited my love of restaurants. Like, I love it that they love no more. I love it that we go to Pacificana in Sunset Park. We go to like Dim Sum Go-Go. They, ha they know what they like. They, they ingest the culture and the, the vivacity of a restaurant. And I really love that too. So we do share some things, of course. My kid's favorite restaurant is Namwa. Yeah, there's so much there. There's so much history. There's so much people watching. The yes. food is delicious. You know, I did the Namwa cookbook as well. So I was like very fortunate to be part of that world a little bit and um, get endless dumplings. Yeah, I had that cookbook on my show. With Wilson. Yes, I love Wilson. We've been going there since my kid was in preschool when Wilson first opened it. Again, sometimes my kids don't want to go into Manhattan. Okay, well, we just hop on the bike and we bike out to Pacificana 
which is like a totally different feel. Definitely banquet style. I feel like it's not so much my trying to show them things as much as following their interests and trying to add on a little where I can. Over the weekend, I made the recipe for spring rolls on page 108 from Bo Songvisava. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, Songvisava. And uh, Dylan Jones from Bolan in Bangkok. Dylan wrote that this was Bo's inspiration because she loves origami and she can fit a bunch of vegetables into the spring roll and the kids think they're fun to eat. It's a win-win. They were, I think, one of the first couples that submitted a recipe they are wonderful and that like that idea of a of, in this case it's a spring roll but there's also a bunch of dumplings in the book things where kids can also this th- just to be clear this book is not cooking with your kids it's cooking for your kids but that said a lot of the chefs said that one of the ways they get their kids interested in food is by partaking in the cooking process something like folding spring rolls or closing dumplings if you mess up, you're not going to slice off your hand. Those are like very easy activities for kids to participate in. And then once they participate, then naturally they want to eat more. They're, they're more interested in what shows up on the plate. Now to my segment called Dream Dinner Party, where I ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why. Well, look, can I ask some clarifying questions? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> do they have to be alive? No, they can be whatever, alive, dead, in the middle, coma. But if they are dead, when they come to your dinner party, they will be alive. Yes. Okay. You know, I've been reading, it's a weird answer, but I've been reading a lot about Francis Ford Coppola. And he's so interesting to me because he has made these amazing films. And then he's kind of made some clunkers. And then he's also made movies just because he needs to pay the bills. And he has hotels. And he's like an interesting mix to me of an auteur and just like a super pragmatic, I'm going to make art. If I'm going to make art, I'm going to do this. Yeah, I'm compromised, but I'm just going to do it. You know what I mean? And he'd bring the wine. And like to me as like a writer, I'm so interested in artists who choose their spots of when to be like purely their vision and then when they have to pay the bills. And it's something that I think a lot of writers and a lot of creative people and a lot of artists struggle with. And I really admire how he knits that all together. And so I think I would ask him to come over for dinner. And yes, bring the wine and maybe his daughter and maybe his son and maybe Nick Cage could come along too, who's a Coppola. (laughs) Yes, uh, he is a Coppola. Yeah, be a big fun dinner party. Lots of yelling, I assume. (laughs) But, But that's familiar to you. Yes, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Where can we find you on the web and social media? I have a website, Joshua David Stein. I'm on Instagram at Joshua David Stein. I think I'm on Twitter at Fake Josh Stein, although I don't use that. But I also have a newsletter, which is very occasional, on Substack called the JDS Newsletter. So all of those places. To purchase Cooking for Your Kids and support the podcast, head on over to cookerybythebook.com. And thanks, Joshua, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie. It was wonderful. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.